And still when watching it, you might feel, you know, disgusted by what you see. You're listening to Animalistic. Today's guest is Dr. Judith Benz Schwarzberg. I'm a postdoc researcher at the Messele Research Institute Vienna, which is an inter-university institute belonging to the VETMED Uni Vienna, to the Medical University and the University of Vienna. And we are a huge institute with about 60 researchers working there at the moment, and they are all devoted to studying the human-animal relationship from different perspectives. I'm with the unit of ethics in human animal studies, and we also have a unit for comparative cognition and for comparative medicine. It's a very interdisciplinary uh, bunch of people, which makes it incredibly interesting to work there. It's, it's something that is, I think, unique in the world and very inspiring. I wanted to study this topic, cultural language and theory of mind in animals, and the ethical implications of such capabilities in animals. So how do they matter for animal welfare and animal rights, for example? Last week, we had Professor David Favor, who gave us an introduction to the status of animals under the law. We spoke mostly about his idea of adding a third category into property law to cover living property, an idea that would afford animals infinitely more rights and protections than they currently are given as mere property. But aside from companion animals, he had a lot to say about a much larger and more extensive problem one affecting an estimated 77 billion land animals per year. These 77 billion beings are nowhere near as protected by the law as companion animals. And for many of us who consider ourselves animal lovers, we somehow don't count these animals within our sphere of consideration. Because we have that emotional attachment to the animals that are in our family, and some people are able to abstract away from their dog and cat and understand that we should give some of that to the cows, right? But other people just, there's a wall there and they aren't able to make that abstraction that how they treat their pets might say something about how they should treat farm animals. I, I don't know how to make that go away. That That's a, a real problem. Now, I don't really believe that people are simply incapable of making the small ethical hop from not killing a dog to not killing a pig. People are well aware of what's on their plate. But in our society, eating meat is so normalized. Of course, it helps that we're not usually required to do any of the dirty work ourselves. So we don't see any blood or hear any screams. Usually, when we go to the supermarket, meat is wrapped up neatly in attractive packaging and often does not make reference to the actual animal contained within. We don't eat cows, we eat beef. We don't eat pigs. We eat pork. And this is not even a phenomenon restricted to the English language either. German speakers don't eat Kühe, they eat Rindfleisch. And most Spanish speakers would prefer to eat carne de res than una vaca. There is a term for this, coined by Carol Adams, a vegan feminist scholar and author of several books, including The Sexual Politics of Meat. She refers to this as the absent referent. She writes, Behind every meal of meat there is an absence, the death of the animal whose place the meat takes. The absent referent is that which separates the meat eater from the animal 
and the animal from the end product. The function of the absent referent is to keep our meat separated from any idea that she or he was once an animal, to keep the moo or cluck or ba away from the meat, to keep something from being seen as having been someone. What she means by this then is that the absent referent prevents us from recognizing objects, i.e. meat, as being the bodies of subjects, i.e. animals. But these labels, both linguistically and physically, provide a cushioning against the harsh reality of the meat industry. This is not by accident either. The meat industry is a massively lucrative and politically powerful one, a fact that is not lost on those who try to present legal challenges to those colossal corporations. Industrial animal world seems to have some pretty strong walls. Really, a lot of people support changing it. It's just so hard politically to change it because there are global corporations that we're talking about. And it's a very limited number of global corporations. They're extraordinarily powerful. Of course, apart from the huge legal and political clout that these companies wield to allow them to continue some pretty barbaric practices unchecked, they also have the resources to sway our opinions through the use of advertising and sponsorships. It's quite puzzling to me that such a vast amount of people that consider themselves animal lovers, particularly when it comes to cats and dogs, will turn a blind eye to what goes on inside factory farms and slaughterhouses. This disconnect is known as cognitive dissonance. I will let Dr. Benz Schwarzberg explain more. Cognitive dissonance means that some practices you have collide with some of your moral beliefs or your normative beliefs. So to explain that, many people love to eat meat and they love animals. And that doesn't go well together, right? So there is a cognitive dissonance that has to be ameliorated somehow or mitigated. And we come up with strategies to solve this dissonance. So what kind of strategies do we use? We come up with justification narratives along the lines that those animals we want to eat are stupid and insentient, whereas those we love and want to live with, our pets for example, we accept that they might be sentient animals and also have complex socio-cognitive abilities. There are some nice sociological studies on this where people are asked to rate animals according to their abilities and their ability to suffer on the one hand and on the other hand they have to rate them with regard to whether they perceive them as edible or non-edible. And you will find that those animals that we perceive as edible like in our culture, that would be cows and pigs and chicken and so on. Those are the ones that rank low on the cognitive ability scale and on the suffering scale, but high on the edibility scale. And that could be different for other communities. Again, we can see that that's a cultural thing. The studies from Australia, and they included kangaroos, for example. So kangaroos are perceived as edible, or at least more people in Australia perceive them as edible compared to Austrian citizens. This is what we do, and that says a lot about human psychology also. So that's why I was interested, for example, in pig cognition, because we know little about pig cognition. And it's very surprising to compare what pigs can do with what dogs can do, because they're actually not so different from each other with regard to cognitive and social complexity and still we treat them completely different. 
I too am fascinated with pig cognition and abilities, and for this reason, my master's research focused on this topic. Perhaps, quite naively, I thought that if I can add to the growing body of literature that proves how smart and sensitive pigs are, maybe people would think twice about eating pork. Many people will probably read the highlights of cognitive ethology published also in, in press, in TV and so on. They will be surprised for a moment and then go on eating their sausage. You might remember in episode 2, I spoke about the cardinal sin of comparative psychology being anthropomorphism. This is when you ascribe human-like qualities or states of mind to a non-human animal such as describing a dolphin as happy, or saying a hyena is laughing. While it's not considered very good scientific practice, it's abundant in the realms of culture and media across the world. Most often anthropomorphism takes a form that is morally problematic because it's not just the attribution of these abilities to the animal, but it's also this attribution is the, is the core characteristic why the animal deserves more consideration in the person's view who is doing the anthropomorphism to the animal. While there are countless examples of this in films and children's fiction that seem relatively harmless... I think we have a huge moral problem when these anthropomorph animals, which invite us to identify with them, when these animals are telling anthropocentric stories. But there are other examples where the animals are telling stories that are actually in the interest, for example, of the meat industry. I'm sure that you can think of many examples of animals being anthropomorphized and used to advertise meat. It's so common in supermarket adverts, food labels and brands. It's not unusual to see a cartoon chicken posing confidently as the mascot of a fast food restaurant. Dr. Ben Schwarzberg, along with Professor Herwig Grimm of the Messerle Institute, supervised a master's student, Madeleine Leitzberger, who wrote a paper with an excellent analysis of one such instance of this type of anthropomorphism. They examined a popular Austrian TV commercial of a famous supermarket brand called Ja, Natürlich, which translates to Yes, Naturally. I will include a link on our website to the YouTube video of this commercial in German. But as a brief synopsis, this commercial is set against the backdrop of the alpine environment, complete with the typical mountain landscape, lush and green with crystal clear streams and rivers. A tiny piglet appears and says in a childlike voice, Pack up your pig's ears, let's get started. The piglet approaches a group of cows saying, Ole, ole, bulls, look at me. Ole, ole, catch me if you can. The piglet continues teasing the cattle, calling them cowards. And then, with a red rag in his mouth, shouts, Catch me, you wouldn't dare, before running away and being chased by the cattle. Something that calls to mind the Spanish traditions of running with the bulls or bullfights. Finally, the piglet drops the red rag and runs under a fence, behind which a man is leaning against his car. What the pig is basically doing is working like a sheep herding dog, and he is really more an accomplice of the farmer who is leaning there with his grass between his teeth, very casual, leaning on the fence. Behind him, there's, I would say, a pickup. I'm not sure whether it's a pickup, but it looks like someone in Texas, you know, one of these cattle farmers. This is transferred to Alpine environment, but it's the same idea, right? There is a farmer who is doing, he's a very cool guy, and he has this cool little piglet working for him. 
And he is really doing everything to please the farmer, chasing around these cattle who are depicted as dull, as stupid. Piglet is insulting the cattle, forcing upon them what, what he calls exercise, which really ends with a very cynical question. Hey, farmer, was this enough exercise for the cattle, right? So this means using in a, in a very cynical way, actually, it's more than humoristic, it's cynical way, a narrative from animal welfare science that people want to have the cattle a natural life where they can roam freely and have exercise on a pasture and so on. This is all very serious stuff. And this is rendered into this fun Torero-like game of the pig chasing around the cattle. And in the end, what is on the plate is not the piglet, it's the cattle. And this is how it's supposed to be. And this is even expressed by the brand name. Yeah, naturally. Yes, naturally. Yes, naturally. Apart from the fact that very little in modern animal agriculture is natural, and therefore this representation of the good life in the alpine mountains that these cows enjoy is demonstrably false, there was another big issue with this kind of marketing. Here we see the advertisement using what is known in philosophical circles as an appeal to nature. This is an argument or rhetorical tactic that assumes a thing is good because it's natural or bad because it's unnatural. Although on the surface a very attractive idea, it only takes a few brief moments of critical thinking to come up with obvious examples of this being quite untrue. Viruses, deadly bacterial infections and generally dying young are all natural, yet we try to avoid these through modern medical interventions such as vaccines and antibiotics, which have saved billions of lives across the planet and prevented an immense amount of suffering, not only in humans, but also non-human animals lucky enough to benefit from human care. But this careless and what I would argue is outright false advertising is not the only problem with this commercial. We have something that we have called in the paper a, a direct objectification mm. of the of the cattle being not portrayed as subjects with their own interests and their own complexity. So they are clearly rendered into a voiceless mass, showing signs of objectification, whereas the piglet is also objectified, interestingly, but in a different way. We call this indirect objectification because the only subjectivity he gains comes from aligning him with the human and with attributing human attributes to him. This is why he is um, entering a different category than the cattle, because he has a human voice, he has human emotions, he acts like humans. All of this is not a focus on the pig's own interests, who would normally not do things like he does in this commercial, right? But it's the strategy of anthropomorphism that allows for that. Objectification is a term you might be familiar with if you have an interest in feminist issues. But you may not have heard of objectification used in relation to animals before. Objectification in principle means that you're treating a person or someone, let's say someone because maybe don't know whether animals are persons or some people don't know. So you're treating someone as if um, he or she were a mere insensate object. And what is behind this distinction is that from an ethical perspective, it, may, it, may, it makes a big difference whether you're kicking at a stone or kicking at a human being lying on the floor. 
So that's something you can intuitively grasp. There's a difference. And one difference is that living beings are usually sentient beings, at least the ones we're dealing with when we're talking about biggest part of meat consumption, for example, or zoos or whatever ethical issues we pick. So there's a difference between a someone and a something. And whenever you render a someone into a something, and you can do that in a narrative, and you can do that in a picture, or you can do that by treating him or her accordingly, then you're objectifying this someone. So that means you're neglecting another subject's significance, which means that you're treating her less than she deserves also. And you're most often doing something that amounts to the denial of subjectivity in this being. You're treating the object as if it's experiences and feelings or cognitive abilities or whatever makes up this individual didn't matter. So the question with regard to commercial or one possible question is how can a commercial succeed in, you know, especially in the case we're talking about with the piglet, how, how is it possible that a speaking piglet advertises beef? So one animal, one living animal, advertises for the killing of another animal. That's something you have to achieve somehow. Because um, on, on first sight, you could also say, okay, if the viewer sees a speaking animal in the commercial, she might not want to eat the animal anymore. That is the focus of the advertisement. But usually it's not like that. And the question is why? How does a commercial do that? As it turns out, the methods the advertisers use to achieve this are quite clever. The media is diverting scrutiny. First of all, every time when they are portraying an animal subject as an object, I think they're diverting scrutiny with regard to the human-animal relationship and hierarchy because they are really supporting the presupposition that animals are um, worth less than humans and humans are superior to animals. So they don't make people question these presuppositions anymore, but they are actually, say, they're supporting the prejudices um, many people hold anyways. And what presuppositions are these? The idea that animals matter to the degree of their closeness to humans, this idea that there's a hierarchy in nature and it's not an evolutionary 3D tree, it's a one-dimensional scala nature, so it's a one-dimensional line on which we can find humans and animals in a hierarchy. Usually humans are set on top of this hierarchy because they are animals plus X. You could also turn it around, animals are humans with deficit. So animals are animals, but humans are animals, plus culture, plus language, plus theory of mind, plus morality, and you take whatever you like. You'll probably find all the different things in the literature somewhere in the history of ideas. There's so many uh, ideas in the literature separating humans from animals. And so this idea of a hierarchy is something that is embedded very much in our cultural history. And it's very difficult to get rid of it. And it, it makes it very easy for us to go on with putting us on top of the hierarchy and seeing animals as objects we can eat or animals as objects that are there to entertain us. So it seems that when adverts like the Ja Natterlich one make fun of animals that are supposedly below us, they are employing a pretty base level of comedy. Many comedians in this modern age will say, always punch up, never punch down. 
That is to say, don't attack people who are already marginalized. It is never acceptable to mock a person with a lower social status than us. And most of us would find it downright appalling to see a person who lacks certain abilities or who is not neurotypical openly mocked. Yet, we continue to laugh at animals. What Yurma does is it often portrays animals as anthropomorphic characters that are somehow, you know, compared to the human actor, they are clumsy and they are look awkward a little bit. So they are trying to dance, to sing, but they always look clown-like. And they do so because we measure what they are doing against what a human could do in a situation. Imagine, for example, an animal doing a handstand. And it works nicely with a human acrobat because it's something really great if someone who's working on two legs is reversing this to her hands. If you're training a four-legged animal to do a handstand, and if this animal is, for example, an elephant, well, that's as far away from the human acrobat as it could be. It looks really clumsy. There are many other examples where the animal looks inferior to the human. This is according to the incongruity theory of humor. It means that it's incongruent with the standard a human could display. And that's what makes it funny. Um, and this goes hand in hand with the superiority idea that what is happening here is we're laughing about someone who is inferior or showing inferior skills. Wow. Laughing at those who are not as skillful as us seems almost brutish. Schoolyard bullies spring to mind. So we have the incongruity theory and we have the superiority theory and there is a third one called the relief theory, meaning that we are uh, laughing in some situations because there is a tension or some stress in the viewer that is being relieved by the laugh. And we could very well make sense of this theory in the example of the commercial, for example, because we have, as I have described, there's a tension coming from the cognitive dissonance. So we perceive that there is something awkward going on, actually, something that doesn't really fit together. And this causes a tension in us. And by turning it into laughter, you're not turning it into scrutiny. And it's not only agricultural animals that are harmed by these funny and seemingly innocent representations. Humorous arguments are less scrutinized, usually. So if an animal brings forward a bad message on a greeting card or so, we know that humans perceive the message as less threatening, for example. We also know that if animals are used as entertainment objects, the viewer usually doesn't associate the animal that much anymore with her conservation status, for example. So if you, if you have chimpanzees in TV commercials, this is actually disastrous for any idea of educating people towards conservation because seeing those animals portrayed like that distracts from their serious conservation status. And that's troublesome because we're using a lot, lots of animals in commercials and in movies to, in the first place, bring forward ideas that are very human-centered and have nothing to do with the animals. So there's nothing being told about animals by that. It tells more about us than about the animals' use. And on and the negative side effect is that when people see animals used like that as entertainment objects, they are um, not no longer perceiving them as subjects. They are perceiving them as anthropomorphized objects and they are uh, distracted from the interests of the animal and perspective of the animal in the first place. 
And that perspective might be one that is very critical about what we are doing with animals and doing to animals. To me, it feels like there is something disturbingly deliberate about the mockery of the cruelty that we inflict upon animals in this TV ad. The imagery of the bullfight feels particularly sinister. Although thankfully support for this archaic practice has waned in recent years, approximately 7,000 bulls were killed for sport in the most brutal way imaginable in 2018 in front of baying crowds of Spanish locals and tourists. Most people know what goes on at a bullfight, but in case you didn't, it's the practice of terrorizing a naturally gentle animal to the point they fight back. In a ring, in front of hundreds of loud, leery spectators. A bullfight almost always ends with the matador, the man taunting the bull in the ring, killing him with his sword. After he is killed, the bull's body is dragged out of the ring and processed at a slaughterhouse. Some restaurants buy and advertise this meat as a prized dish and there are those who argue that this meat is more organic than the meat bought in grocery stores. It's the most ecological meat in the world, says Ishmael Diaz, a nutritionist and author of Gastronomia del Toro de Lidia, or Gastronomy of the Fighting Bull in English. In no other meat industry in the world is the animal as well taken care of or as protected as the fighting bull. That is, until he enters the ring. The public torture of bulls in a bullfight may be more shocking than what goes on behind closed doors of a slaughterhouse, but we should be under no illusion that the millions of cows and bulls that become the food on our plates go through immense stress during the transportation to and the processing within the slaughterhouse. As I mentioned in previous episodes, we are able to assess how stressed an animal is through measuring glucocorticoids, such as cortisol, in the blood and saliva of animals. For example, in a 2018 study by a group of researchers at the Faculty of Food Science and Technology, University of Vigo in Spain, found pre-slaughter transport increased cortisol levels in saliva above 3 nanograms per liter, indicative of medium stress, and four hours in a rest area in the slaughterhouse raised them above six nanograms per liter, suggestive of high stress. The researchers also note that other factors such as food deprivation, background noise, the presence of large number of animals waiting to be slaughtered, and mixing with unfamiliar animals or recent mixing of genders may also influence stress at slaughter. I don't know about you, but none of that sounds like a laughing matter to me. I think this is why the denial of the dignity of an animal whose life we have just taken because we want to eat its meat, by joking about the bullfighting seems pretty disgusting. I think it's not a coincidence that they used this example, that that's what Piglet is doing. It, it is rendering something that is very serious from an animal ethics perspective into a fun game, which is only possible because the one we identify with is the one chasing the cows, the bullfighter, right? It's not the bulls. And that's why it works in this instance. So this is a problem from a welfare perspective. So because it bears the danger that we overlook the needs of the animals. Um, but again, it's also beyond welfare, I think, a general problem when we use animals to fulfill our needs. That basically means to instrumentalize them and that's always 
problematic in and of itself. And the problematic use of animals in adverts doesn't end there. Jennifer Lerner and Linda Kalloff, two American philosophers, studied the dominant messages about animals in television commercials in the late 90s. They identified six primary themes in the advertisements. Animals as loved ones, for example a member of the family, as symbols, representation of logos or ideas, as tools, normally for human use or consumption, as allegories, as nuisances, and animals in nature. They find that many of the commercials had multiple themes, indicating the varied, multi-layered messages about animals and advertising, and the different value and use categories that humans assign to different non-human animal species, upholding the ideology of the US political economy. Finally, and quite worryingly, many of the animal images reinforced human gender and racial boundaries. They conclude that we must incorporate the study of non-human animals in sociological theory and research, particularly the animal image in popular culture and its connection to the portrayal of other outgroups, such as women and racial minorities. So, next time you see a smiling piglet on a packet of sausages, be aware that this is a cheap ploy used by industry to soothe your guilt. But more importantly, never underestimate your own power as a consumer. What you choose to spend your money on drives certain practices. And where lawyers, such as Professor Favor, are not gaining ground, perhaps you, as the customer, can be the driver of change. That great big problem of farm animals is still out there. I'm not sure the law is going to change that. Maybe the marketplace will change that with non-meat products that can substitute for meat products. Animals' portrayal in media extends beyond commercials. And later in the series, we will hear from Dr. Ben Schwarzbeck again for more on this. If you like, you could search for her book. It was released in English just last year. The title of the book is Cognitive Kin Moral Strangers Linking Animal Cognition, Animal Ethics and Animal Welfare. That's us for another week. Next week, I will be joined by Dr. Lynn Sneddon, a scientist specializing in aquatic animal biology and fish welfare. You know, if we do something to a fish that could cause tissue damage, does that give rise to pain as it would do in humans? This episode was researched, written, and produced by me, Catherine Cray. My thanks to Dr. Judith Ben Schwarzberg for a wonderful interview, and as always to my executive producer, Claire, and my tech assist, Mustafa, who is working on a fabulous website for our podcast as we speak. Please subscribe and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for The Animalistic Podcast. Until next time, stay safe, be kind. Oh, and make good choices. <laughs>